Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. This week at AJC, we were joined by one of Israel's most renowned and celebrated filmmakers, Joseph Cedar for a special live show where we discussed his hit HBO miniseries, Our Boys. It was fascinating to get Cedar's firsthand account of how he translated the tragedies of summer 2014 into television, his analysis of the social and political climate that led to those attacks, and the critical reception the show has received from some prominent Israelis. If you're not watching Our Boys, the time to tune in is now. But even if you're not watching it, this episode is still well worth a listen. Here's that conversation now. Let me turn now to uh, to our guest tonight. Joseph Cedar is an award-winning Israeli-American film writer. He has won the Ophir Prize, Israel's Academy Award, as well as top awards at both the Cannes and Berlin Film Festivals. His 2011 film Footnote is a personal favorite of mine and was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Joseph has now made his first foray into television as the co-creator, writer, and producer of the new miniseries Our Boys from HBO and Israel's Keshet. As someone who has watched all eight of the episodes that have aired so far, let me say this. The show is fantastic. It is gripping, emotional, masterfully shot, and brilliantly acted. Were it fiction, it would be up there with some of the most delightfully thrilling dramas of our era, like The Americans, and certainly up there with Homeland and Fauda as some of the best shows to have come out of Israel. But Our Boys is not fiction. It is a tragic recreation of the heartbreaking events from the summer of 2014, in which three Israeli boys, Eyal Yifrach, Gilad She'er, and Naftali Frankel, were kidnapped and murdered by Hamas terrorists in the West Bank. And then, in a reprisal, three Orthodox Jewish men committed their own act of terror, abducting and murdering Mohammed Abu Khader from outside his home in East Jerusalem. We're now here live with Joseph to discuss the events that led to the creation of this show, the choices he and his co-creators Chagai Levi and Tafik Abu Wael made in the process, and the reception the show has gotten. Joseph, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Let me begin at the beginning. Where did the idea to create Our Boys come from? And let me add, because I'm sure this question came up in those conversations, how did you decide that it wasn't too soon for this kind of project? All right, so I'll try to be as factual as I can. This was an assignment from HBO. It didn't come from me or from Chagai, uh, and not from Taufik, who joined our team uh, in the middle of the process. Um, HBO and Keshet came to Chagai and asked him to do something about the summer of 2014 in Israel, not really being specific what in that summer uh, was interesting to them. Chagai developed uh, a story that uh, was mostly fictional with a backdrop of some of the events that uh, you mentioned that happened in, in that summer. At that point, HBO um, read what he had done and approved a 10-hour a series without shooting a pilot, without writing scripts, just based on Chagai's idea. Um, at this point, he approached me and... Um, this was the first time I considered doing something for television, but I was excited to work with Chagai. For those of you who don't know, Chagai created in treatment, and he's just a, a really smart and serious uh, storyteller. And regardless of what the topic was, I was happy to have that opportunity. 
when we got into the actual material, um, I was um, I was less excited about the fictional side of, of this project. And after a few months of research, research into the events of summer of 2014, speaking with experts, speaking with journalists, speaking with all the people who were involved in the different things that we now uh, packaged as summer of 2014, um, I told Chagai that I think we should focus on a real story. And out of all the things that we touched in our research, uh, the murder of Muhammad Abu Khdir seemed like the most challenging, the most um, interesting for us as Israeli storytellers. Uh, before we committed to that, we went on this uh, two-week um, research um, adventure. Uh, we decided to speak with everyone who was willing to speak with us, who was part of uh, either the investigation, the Abu Khdir family, members of the murderer's families, anyone who would speak to us in those two weeks, um, we spoke with them. And at the end of those two weeks, we decided this is our, this is our show. Mm-hmm. You mentioned kind of this divide between doing something fictional versus doing something that is a, a dramatization of, of historical events. I got into a, a mini fight, a polite fight on Facebook, if such a thing is possible, um, with a friend of mine who, you know, I, I was saying, I wish that there were a clearer line. There are times when you use actual footage, um, and there are times when it's, it's clearly a reenactment. And I kind of, where we settled out, uh, and we both agreed, was that we would want to watch almost like a um, an annotated version of this show. Was there any thought to kind of the way in which historical footage versus like dramatization, how that interplayed and what that said for viewers of the show? I would say there were two considerations that defined our principles of when to use documentary footage. One is just a logistical one. Uh, All the really big scenes with hundreds of thousands of people. At the Kotel, for example. Right. Those are documentary. The other other principle we had was there were some things that we felt – the audience had to understand that what is on screen um, is real, and that we're not we're not manipulating the reality. We're not um, we're not doing anything to push a certain political agenda. But we're just showing what the the things that we were exposed to while we were researching the show. So, for instance, the riots in Jerusalem that broke out right after the bodies of the three Jewish boys were found. Um, I didn't remember seeing that footage uh, as an Israeli who was very involved in that summer. Um, I don't live in Jerusalem, but watching it was incredibly um, surprising to me. Tens of thousands of people came out to the streets of Jerusalem and shouted, death to Arabs, this is real. So it was important to us to find a way to incorporate this kind of footage because it it plays such an important role in the rest of the show. Mm -hmm. When you were creating the show. You said that the idea kind of started from HBO and then germinated further. And when you were creating the show, did you and, and Chagai and Taufik give any thought to the international audience as you were creating? Is, is the show different in any way than it might have been had you been making it purely for an Israeli audience? So I, I've been asked this question after every project I, I've been in. And the, and the answer is categorically no. Um, after the fact, um, sometimes you question your decisions because you, you meet an international audience and you see how it's, how it's seen by outsiders. But the process itself is, is inward. The three of us gave 
you know, every ounce of energy we have to figure out what we think this story really is about and how to make sure we're able to put that on screen with integrity and without compromising things that are important to us. Um, there really isn't another consideration. We're, we're thinking of an audience, but it's not either international or local. We're thinking of an audience that we hope will understand the nuances of what we're doing. And the truth is, when I picture someone watching something that I'm doing, and specifically with this show, it's usually someone who's really on the inside. Mm. And I mean, there, there are shows that you watch and they have this broad texture to them so that you know that people who are experts on the topic of the show will not really like what they're seeing. I, I think it's safe to say that with this show, it's clear that we're hoping people who are experts will appreciate how careful we were with the details. And what about the beginners, right? I mean, w w would you want this to be someone's first introduction to Israel? I don't know. And I think with, like with any piece of literature or entertainment, uh, different people experience things differently. Uh, and I'm hoping there's something here for, for an audience that isn't as knowledgeable. But um, in general, most of the emphasis and the energy that we put into this work is for an audience that is knowledgeable. I guess my question is more kind of, you know, AJC is an advocacy organization. We want to improve Israel's place in the world. Um, from that perspective, from the perspective of, you know, what will the Goyim think, right? Like, if you're someone who's just, uh, you know, watching The Deuce on HBO and, you know, the 9 o'clock hour ends, 10 p.m. rolls around and you leave it on and you see our boys, you know, do you feel any responsibility? Are you, are you happy? Would you be happy to know that, someone who has kind of no deeper knowledge of Israel, that this is their first exposure to it. So I can't say that I don't feel any of what you're saying. Um, but it's not, uh, it's not something that determines decisions. And I, I don't work for an advocacy organization. <laughs> and it's, it's, if anything, um, I'm the opposite of an advocacy organization. Our effort is focused on the characters, on the, the human side of all these big political questions. There are people that we wrote, and hopefully they generate sympathy and, and they have arcs. That's where our work uh, goes into. Mm -hmm. Just to stay on this for one moment more, Prime Minister Netanyahu called the show anti-Semitic. America's not the only country that has kind of these culture wars ongoing that politicians, you know, sometimes um, trade in. I was puzzled by the charge because to me it seems clear that the central hero of the show, Simone, at least I think he's the central hero, maybe that's not so cut and dried, uh, is an agent in Israel's internal security service, the Shin Bet. Um, what did you think when you heard that charge? That it's great for publicity. <laughs> and that it, it has to be seen in the context of the election that uh, he was campaigning for. And it ha really has nothing to do with the content of our show. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's kind of cynical. And if, if I have any comment on it, I think using the word anti-Semitism for something that isn't is really uh, harmful. So when there is anti-Semitism in the world, and some of that anti-Semitism is calling to boycott Israeli culture, using that term uh, against... Jewish Israelis who are deeply rooted in their heritage and religion and culture um, is, is cynical and, and, and harmful. 
So, Joseph, this is a show that revolves around the clash of two nationalisms, Zionism and Palestinian nationalism. It engages with major geopolitical events. Um, it's obviously built around um, the war in, in Gaza in 2014 and, and the events that precipitated it. But I think there's a decision that you made along with Chagai and Taufik to let Operation Protective Edge, to let that war kind of recede into the background. And instead, what moves into the foreground is the interplay of a number of families, right? In many ways, there's like a family drama here, right? Simone's family, which for those of us who are only up to episode eight, were just teased a little bit about what could be coming. Um, the Ben David family, who are the family of the Jewish terrorists, um, the Abu Khader family, of course. Maybe the, you know, quote unquote family of the Shin Bet group that's working together. Um, maybe I'm torturing this analogy, but the we're all cousins anyway, you know, kind of Jewish Muslim thing. Was that an intentional decision to kind of focus in that light? Yes. If the show was exactly a reflection of my sensibilities, there'd even be more of an emphasis on the family story. Um, I, I should remind your listeners that this collaboration is not an easy or natural one. It's two Israelis with, um, with a friendship, but different sensibilities, different political points of view, different, different tastes, and a Palestinian writer-director uh, who took the really difficult role of representing the Palestinian narrative in this Israeli-produced show, which, if I mean, I, I can't imagine myself doing this if the shoe was on the other foot. Um, so there are a lot of compromises being made. Uh, in general, this collaboration created something that could not have been made by any of us individually. And I, I think it's the one thing that surprised me, that there is, there, there is a, a greater idea that comes out of argument and three different points of view and not just one person owning it. I'm, I'm saying all that uh, because one of the big arguments we had was how much of the political context uh, can the show put on the screen? For Taufik, it was extremely important mm. uh, to bring in the war in Gaza from the Palestinian point of view. When we discussed where we begin the story and where we end the story, the difference in our political outlooks or just our personal outlooks uh, between me, Chagai, and Taufik was drastic. Um, so, yes, there's a great family drama uh, on the Palestinian side and on the Israeli side. And if you look carefully into the episodes... I think some of these um, big family themes are part of what, um, of what caused this murder. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the characters are real to the point that you interviewed them and they are like kind of explicitly represented on the screen. Others are, I think Simone is a composite character who doesn't exist in, in real life. Um, that's the Shimbet agent. What was it like kind of building those bits and, and pieces um, in order to be able to tell the story authentically? The end of the show leads us to the trial. In, in a murder trial, every tiny detail affects the verdict. So our basic decision was that we're not going to change or play around with anything that uh, will affect the trial. So all the, like the investigation and every factual incident in the show is based on our research as deep as we can go into that research. Uh, naturally, personal encounters, we needed the freedom to make them dramatically interesting, thematically interesting, and, and we did. Uh, Hussein and Sua are Muhammad's parents. 
uh, are in the show with their own names. Uh, Taufik did feel some responsibility to put the personality as he learned to, to understand their personality on the screen. But even there, we, uh, we created some drama that just felt right for us. And we shared some of our decisions with them. Uh, like you said, Simon is um, he's a composite of a few people that we met. Uh, we knew but that he's such a compelling character. So I, I, I should say that the actor who plays Simon, his name is Shlomi El Kabetz. He's a writer director known in Israel for films like Get. Uh, he's also uh, the brother of uh, a late uh, actress named Ronit El Kabetz. Uh, but most of his work had to do with his Jewish Moroccan identity. Mm-hmm. This was a big factor in in his understanding and coming to terms with who these murderers were. And he became more than just an actor for us. He contributed uh, to the scenes that have to do with that side of his identity in a very big way. Um, just to, to follow up, Avishai and Yinon. To my knowledge, those names are not public. The, the actual... Right. Perpetrators, Yosef Chaim Ben David is, is a name that was released pretty quickly because he is uh, of age, and his two cousins who uh, assisted in the murder took part in the murder. Two nephews. Uh, two, sorry, you're right. Two nephews. Um, of course, you're right. Um, were minors, and so their names were not public. So, how did you go about creating those characters? Most of the information we have about the two uh, minor. Killers. Are, are those even their names? No. Okay. Um, I think what convinced us that this is a show that will justify a few years of our life was seeing uh, the actual reenactment of Avishai's character, which was part of the evidence that we saw. Uh, so uh, Israeli public, or no, no one has seen his face, uh, but we were given the video of the reenactment, and there's something about him that is just really puzzling. Um, and the, the character that we built has to do with that impression that he left on us. Uh, he's sweet, he's smart, he's sensitive, he stutters. He has personal problems, but he had, he had a therapist and he had a way of, of um, processing his problems in writing and in conversation with his therapist and, and then later with his lawyer. So we were given insight into his character through, through these materials. Uh, a lot of it, obviously, we needed to, um, to imagine, but I don't think it's, um, it's that far from, from basic things that are true about the real of Ishai. Mm-hmm. Um, when the New York Times interviewed you and your colleagues about this show, um, they asked the obvious question about why you didn't devote more time to the murder of the three Israeli boys. And I thought that your answer was so profound. I just want to read a, a portion of it. You said, focusing on the victimhood creates more acts of revenge. Focusing on the aggression acts to try to stop the wheel, uh, that wheel of, of revenge. Do you feel that the, that the show, are you, are you happy with how the show has kind of captured that focus on the aggression? You know, I, the, the discussion that came out of that question, why, why isn't the show about the three Jewish boys? Uh, why is it about the, the horrible effect that it had on, uh, on Palestinians? I think the discussion itself became uh, something that I, I'm really interested in. It was a reminder how important it is to the Jewish-Israeli identity to feel like a victim. Uh, victimhood, 
of course, is a big part of, of Jewish identity. And it is true that our history is, is a history of, of being victims. Um, but at this moment in history, Israel is, is powerful. Uh, Jews are prosperous and lucky. And questioning that component in our identity seems like a, a good thing to discuss. It's not saying that there aren't Jewish victims, and it's not taking away from my ability to sympathize with Jewish pain, but it's acknowledging that there's something that feels wrong with constantly convincing the world we're the victim, when actually anyone who isn't blind can see that there are victims who are suffering uh, in a much deeper way than Israelis are right now. Yeah. Joseph, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Adam Razgon is the Palestinian Affairs and Arab World Correspondent for the Times of Israel. He joins us now to explain how the joint list, Israel's majority Arab party, came to be, what its issues are, and what its success in last week's election means for Israeli politics. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. How are you doing? (laughs) Doing well. Um, So I think we should kind of begin at the beginning here because we're on to talk about how the Arab party, the joint list, did in last week's Israeli election. But first, what is the joint list? The joint list is an alliance of the four largest Arab majority parties. Uh, It's an eclectic group. There's one party, which is a secular nationalist party called Balad. There's another called Hadash, which is a a socialist party that emphasizes Jewish-Arab cooperation. It has both Jewish and Arab members. Uh, There's another party called Ta'al, or the Arab uh, Movement for Renewal. And that party is kind of based around this one uh, popular veteran Arab lawmaker named Ahmed Tibi. Uh, And then there's the fourth party, which is uh, essentially the southern branch of the Islamist movement in Israel, uh, it's an Islamist party, and it's called uh, Ram. So it's essentially a collection of those four parties that are together. Um, it was originally established in 2015. Uh, Lieberman, um, Avigdor Lieberman, who's the head of the Israel Beitanyo party, uh, at the time had pushed a bill in the Knesset, uh, which became law, to increase the threshold from 2% to 3.25% at the time. And because these parties on their own likely wouldn't pass the threshold, they all came together in 2015. So just to explain that a little bit more for our listeners, uh, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong here, you can't just win one seat or two seats in the Knesset. That's because in order to have like good governance, to know that you're not going to have all these really tiny factional parties, there's a threshold, which is quite normal in a parliamentary democracy. And in order to get any seats at all, now you need to win 3.25% of the total vote. And that discourages the creation of smaller parties. And so each of these four factions that really some are secular, some are religious, some are nationalists, some are socialists, there are major differences between them. They all kind of united and created the joint list. Is that right, Adam? Yeah. So essentially in 2015, they overcame all of their differences and were able to form this coalition in order to essentially maintain their survival. And what happened in the last election in April, because we just had a second round of elections in the past year, in April, uh, they actually split into two different parties. There were a number of disagreements, especially over how the seats would be distributed on the 
slate that they were going to put forward in April. And essentially, they broke up into two different parties. But before this election that we had last week, or a week and a half ago, um, they reunited once again, and we had the four-party coalition. So in 2015, there were a lot of headlines made because Prime Minister Netanyahu on Election Day sent out a message to his Likud party um, base saying, you know, the Arabs are voting in droves and encouraging them to turn out to go to the polls in order to kind of counteract the Arab vote. Was the prospect of Arab voting, were Arab voters, were they an issue in, in this election that just took place? Yeah, so there was a significantly higher turnout of uh, Arab voters in this election compared to the one in April. Uh, There was a lot of frustration before the last election in April in the Arab community. Many people were disappointed that the joint list had broken up into two different parties. The Arab public was proud of the unity that was created in the joint list. And when it fell apart, there was lots of disappointment in that. There were a lot of people that were questioning what's the value of having uh, Arab representatives in parliament. They felt like their representatives and their presence in the Knesset wasn't turning into sort of change in their day-to-day lives. There's lots of issues in their community like crime, uh, lack of building permits, and so forth. And they weren't seeing change on those issues with their uh, representatives and their communities in the parliament. And also some rhetoric that Netanyahu was employing in the last election against there to a pretty low turnout. It was about estimated to be about 49 percent. In this past election, it jumped up to 59 percent. Um, I think there's a number of reasons why it jumped up to 59%. Uh, one is definitely the reconstitution of the joint list. Another reason I think it's just been cited widely is, is sort of the rhetoric that Prime Minister Netanyahu had employed in the lead up to the election, even on election day, against their community. And there was a sense that his rhetoric, essentially this, this anti Arab rhetoric that he was employing, had increased the numbers. There's also a, a bill that Netanyahu tried to push through the Knesset, which would allow for party activists to bring cameras into the polling station. In the previous election in April, the uh, Likud party had essentially put together this scheme, uh, hiring a consulting firm to arm a number of their party activists with cameras. The head of the Central Elections Committee had banned the Likud from doing that in this last election after the experience in April. And Netanyahu wanted to overrule, to essentially override the Central Election Committee's uh, decision to push this legislation through. But he didn't get a majority and wasn't able to push it through. Another reason why some people think there was a higher turnout this past time was because Ayman Oday, who's the head of the joint list, had said that he would be willing to sit in the center-left coalition meaning that he'd be willing to sit in the Israeli government, be a partner to essentially uh, the, the, the center-left uh, prime ministerial candidate, Benny Gantz, if certain conditions are met. He laid out many, many conditions, probably conditions that Gantz could not meet. Uh, but the suggestion that he was ready to sit in the government was seen as somewhat unprecedented. And according to polling and other research, it was seen as another reason why people turned out to vote in higher numbers. Uh, That's very important, and I, I want to come back to that in a moment, Adam. But before um, before yeah. we move on to that um, important part of the conversation, you know, you mentioned crime in Arab villages, and you mentioned how difficult it can be to get building permits in the Arab sector um, as kind of two of the issues that are important to the joint list. Are those the things, you know, this is a very diverse slate of candidates, as we said before. Are those kind of the two main issues that the joint list runs on? 
So Iman Ode is the head of the joint list, and a number of their uh, members um, have said that crime is their top concern. There was something like four members of the Arab community of Israel who were murdered in the days following the election. There was another person that was murdered, I believe, this last weekend, and they've said that that's a top priority for them. The issue of building, too, Iman Ode went on Facebook last night and said that's also a top priority for them. It's issues that really affect the day-to-day lives of the citizens, the Arab citizens of Israel living in their communities. And it's something that's been an issue for many, many years. So so this all brings us to Tuesday. And as you were saying, on Tuesday, the joint list did quite well. They won 13 seats. And just to remind our listeners what happens now, right, because unlike in America, there's kind of a multi-stage election in Israel. So now all the parties know how many seats they have. And the president of Israel, Ruvain Rivlin, asks the parties to let him know who they think is best positioned to assemble a majority coalition of at least 61 seats. So that kind of throws these 13 seats that the joint list won. That makes them very important because that gets you a good chunk of the way toward 61. And as you were saying, Ayman Oda expressed that he uh, would potentially be interested in leading the party into the coalition that Gantz would be creating. Now, is that significant? How often do Arab parties sit in the government? Okay, so regarding this past week when we had the recommendation, essentially each party after the election needs to go to the president of uh, Israel, and they sit with him and they tell him who they recommend for prime minister. Historically, Arab parties or Arab majority parties uh, have not recommended any candidate except for one uh, year, and that was in 1992, sort of right before the height of the Oslo process when the Arab Democratic Party and Hadash, which is the Socialist Democratic Party that I mentioned previously, recommended Yitzhak Rabin, uh, the late prime minister who was assassinated in 1995, to President Chaim Herzog. And they made a number of deals with uh, Yitzhak Rabin and the Labor Party in order to throw their support behind him. And they actually indeed went ahead to create what some people call a preventative block, which meant that Yitzhak Rabin had his own government of 62 members, which was majority in the parliament, a simple majority. And from the outside, just to make sure that the Labor Party and Rabin had more votes when they were trying to push through legislation and advance the Oslo process, the peace process of the Palestinians, these two Arab parties gave them some extra votes. And they did that in return for a number of things. Uh, They recognized so the Israeli government at that time recognized the number of villages that were until then unrecognized in the Galilee. According to Talib Asana, who I spoke to this week, who was a member of the Arab Democratic Party, he said that indeed all the villages that were unrecognized in the Galilee became recognized. They also recognized a number of villages in the Negev that had previously been unrecognized. They created a committee to invest, according to Talib Asana, billions of shekels into the Arab communities. Uh, And there were a number of other moves that were made, including repealing the law that had prevented Israelis from meeting with members of the PLO, which was another demand of these Arab parties or Arab majority parties, and uh, also probably something that Rabin wanted to do in order to advance the Oslo process. Adam, what is this all going to amount to? Will we see Arab parties potentially entering the government? You know, where are we now? I don't think we're going to see Arab parties entering the government. 
I think it's highly unlikely, even if Gantz becomes prime minister, that we'll see this kind of arrangement that I just described between the two Arab majority parties in 1992 and the Rabin government. What we saw this past week was a recommendation. We saw the joint list take 10 of their 13 members and recommend Gantz for prime minister. And it's important to Gantz because in order for him to be given a mandate to attempt to form a government, he wants to get as many recommendations as he can. And Netanyahu ended up getting the 57, 55 uh, recommendations compared to Gantz's 54. But the joint list for the first time since 1992 became an Arab majority party that recommended a Zionist candidate for prime minister. And it's really significant because it's a sign that the joint list wants to be influential in politics. They want people to bring deliverable to their people. There's polling that's been done that's very, very clear. Past week, the joint list did an internal poll. It showed that 79% of their public supports them recommending Gantz. So I think in a lot of ways, it was a recognition of this is what our people want. They want us to engage with the Jewish majority, the Zionist parties in Israel, to attempt to influence, to attempt to make uh, their situation better. Uh, to be involved in politics, I was walking around Sakhmin, and uh, which is an Arab village in the north, as well as uh, El Araba, which is another Arab village nearby. And I asked a number of people, I probably spoke to 20 or 30 people on election day, the overwhelming majority said that they want to be influential. They want their, the joint list to, to play an influential role in politics. Uh, they don't want them to be on the sidelines. They don't want them only to exercise their influence through the media. They want them to exercise their influence through policymaking. They want them to be involved in decision-making. Numbers of people I spoke to said they want the joint list to join the coalition. Uh, and they didn't even stutter in saying that. Uh, that being said, there were a few people who did say, this isn't the time. We shouldn't be entering the government because what are we going to do if there's a war between uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Israel? Are we going to support Israel bombarding parts of Gaza in response to rocket fire? Are we going to support Israel's policies in the West Bank? Uh, that was an opinion of, I would say, a minority of the people I spoke to, but still an important opinion amongst their public. Well, this kind of further and deeper political engagement between Arabs and Israelis in Israel certainly seems like a positive development, one which we will continue to watch very closely. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Television. Good for the Jews? We were all warned that it would rot our brains, but far from it. Television has become the medium for some of the most provocative, thoughtful, and beautiful art of the 21st century. Rolling Stone's television critic Alan Sepinwall, who happens to be Jewish himself, helped popularize the term peak TV to describe the embarrassment of riches that small screen watchers are the beneficiaries of. This includes U.S. shows with overtly Jewish references and themes like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Broad City, and Transparent, American adaptations of Israeli TV like Homeland, or even Israeli shows in Hebrew that have nevertheless made the jump to U.S. audiences like Our Boys, Fauda, and Shtisel. More such shows are doubtless on the way as content-hungry providers like HBO, Netflix, and Hulu continue to mine Israel's seemingly bottomless reserves of creative energy to offer to their subscribers. 
whether you're laughing along to Larry David or Midge Maisel, hyperventilating to the action of the CIA or the IDF, or bawling your eyes out over the small family tragedies in Stiesel or the cataclysmic national ones in Our Boys. You're benefiting from the fact that television is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 